Good evening, everybody. Or well, good afternoon, I should say. Um, welcome to this screening of Under the, the Cranes, uh, Literature, Film and the City, uh, part of the LSE's Cities Literary Festival. Um, I hope you enjoy the film. Uh, it's an excellent piece of work, um, followed by what would be an equally excellent, I hope, panel discussion, members of which you can see up there, and I'll introduce them more fully when we get to that part of the, uh, the programme. Uh, when the panel have finished doing their bit, you'll all be invited to do your bit, and I hope that will be just as entertaining and stimulating. So do feel free to uh, formulate your thoughts throughout the film and throughout the discussion, and get your hands ready to be in the air at around about 20 past six. Thank you very much. Before we start the film, Michael wants to say a couple of words. Thank you. Hi, that was Patrick, Patrick Hazard. Uh, Hazard. Um, just a few words about the film, what you're going to see, and well, really about how it evolved, if you like, just so you get a sense of kind of where it came from. I, I was commissioned um, to write uh, a play called Something to Do with Hackney, probably with the word streets in the title, Hackney Streets, and I was commissioned to do that as part of a literary festival that was called Right to Ignite, that was supported by the Arts Council in Hackney about three years ago. And I worked away, and the idea was that it would be for sixth formers to put on. So um, the idea was it was something they could put on quickly, so I didn't write a full dramatic play, if you like. I wrote more like a radio play, a play for voices, where as, uh, quite a large cast could stand and, as it were, throw the speeches to each other with a chorus present. And so... Uh, the sixth formers at B6 College, just by the Leebridge roundabout in Lower Clapton, put it on, um, and they put it on in the Round Chapel in Lower Clapton. I don't know whether you know where that is. And it was done almost uh, in, in the round, if you like. They stood in various places around the chapel, and the audience stood in the middle. Um, and then after that, the producer, Chris Preston, um, said that he wanted to put it on as a, a semi-professional production, and he put it on in the pub theatre, the Rosemary Branch, on the borders of Islington and Hackney, and he put it on there. And in a smaller space, they did the same thing. They kind of threw voices at each other across the space while the audience was seated around them. And on both occasions, uh, Emma Louise Williams came to see the play and afterwards said that she would like to make a film of it. And so over the next two years, that's exactly what she did. Uh, Emma Louise uh, was and still is um, a radio producer, and this is her first film. So what you're going to see then is a film and um, a radio play, if you like, uh, together. So um, some people get a little bit bothered, I just warn you of this, about genre, I think the word is. Um, and um, I suppose all I'd like to say is um, don't. Just don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> okay. Um, a quick note about genre, which uh, Michael mentioned at the beginning. Um, my name is Patrick Hazard, I'm the director of the London. International Documentary Festival, um, but we are also independent, so it's, uh, it will pass. Um, genre, yeah, it's, um, we get lots of films uh, about cities. Um, and the last few weeks, I've been watching films 
constantly because we're in the middle of our, or the end, thankfully, of our selection process for this year's festival. Um, and we get a lot of feels about cities. It's a subject that obviously fascinates many, many people. And yet, what we find, or as I find, and maybe I'm getting a bit uh, fed up with it, but uh, that the ways in which cities are represented tend to fall into two categories, uh, two kind of representational tropes, which really is a polite way of saying cliches. But um, they tend to fall into kind of uh, barren landscapes, uh, which are often wordless um, depictions. And the overall feeling is, is of places which are devoid of human life, uh, and above all, um, devoid of voices, which is all strange, because if you live in a city, all you ever hear is noise, um, above all, voices. Um, so it was something of a relief to uh, come across this film uh, with so many voices um, and so many ways of articulating the experience of living in a city. Um, but there is an issue about genre, I suppose, which I'll address, which is the use of a, a script. And, and this will bring us on to the literary part of this, this discussion, I suppose, because we'll discuss how the, uh, a literary uh, representations or narratives can in, in, inform a documentary type approach. Um, and it is quite interesting because documentary filmmakers are very loath, in my um, understanding at least, um, of using um, pre-written scripts, of having something which is so, uh, so pre-arranged. There's a belief, which I think is often misplaced, that the only verite is a wordless one, and that every meaning can be found simply on the surface, and the camera will tell all. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true, and uh, often it's used as an excuse not to go into uh, a kind of interpretation which I think an author or a filmmaker can bring to their subject matter. The overall point being, of course, what does the narrative, what does the text bring to the piece? How does it increase our understanding of what it means to live in the city? How does it increase our understanding um, of the people that live in these cities? And how does it increase the empathy we feel for these various lives which are lived side by side and often uh, separately? So that's my thought on genre. Um, but uh, I know that these two here have some thoughts, and I'm now introduce everyone formally uh, from my bit of paper here. Um, I thought, oh. um, well, on my left, Michael Rosen, uh, who oh. Rosen, sorry, <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, Rosen, um, who, as you understand, is the uh, the author of the, of the narrative, um, the filmmaker Emma Louise Williams. That right. Now, um, and then we have Andrea uh, Zuka Zimmerman, Luca Zimmerman, uh, <laughs> and sorry, she used the class, shouldn't I? Really? Um, and then um, uh, Lasse Johansson over here. But these two are also very important because they are, they, um, are fugitive images and they've been working on a project um, uh, called Estate. And you may have observed outside on the table where all those books are lined up. There's a pile of their, their book called Estate, which I was looking through earlier, and I think you should have a look at it, or um, definitely worth looking at. Um, so they've been involved in this, uh, this project, looking at an estate which has been demolished, or uh, in the process of being demolished, um, and they combine images and text in a way which I think is uh, particularly interesting. Um, at which point I will pass over to them for their thoughts on tonight's film. Yeah, so um, we have been working on this site-specific project for since about 2008 that this actually has emerged out of uh, the place where we live, which is our home in Haggerston Estate. And um, it is a site-specific project that 
in, in, in actually watching the film was really interesting because it is a project that was also very much triggered uh, by voices because in 2008, in October 2008, um, uh, Hackney Council installed, or, sorry it was 2007, Hackney Council installed orange boards to cover the void units uh, on the facade of, of the estate, um, which had counter, uh, it kind of stigmatized the place quite a lot. Um, and as our, where we live, uh, faces the, the canal, Regent's Canal, so what we actually had, we had like, we started to hear loads of voices of passers-by commenting on the orange boards, um, as well as kind of speculating about the nature of, of the demise of the state, because it was a so-called sinker state. So that was kind of what triggered us and motivated us to start to think about you know, the, the changes in the area um, and, you know, what those changes meant. And um, we were started to think about, also quite similar to one of the quotes saying that um, old voices, um, go on, and new voices, uh, there is always new voices or something like that. And we were starting to really think about, you know, what is it that is happening, what, what is made um, to disappear and what is made to be visible with this, pro with this like kind of latest wave of, of current um, uh, quite rapid transformation um, uh, of Hackney. Um, so there is this kind of um, similarity with, with your concerns about voices. Um, and then also uh, another thing that I think is, because of course we started then to, to think about what is the nature of change and how do we deal with this. Change is always kind of a double-edged sword. Do we, do we embrace it, but you know, what are the negative effects of this change? And I think that is, again, uh, there is another quote from the, uh, from the film that, that really shines very true to me. So it says, these are our places. Why do some get demolished and disappear whilst others remain? And, and to me, the film, uh, more than anything else, is a very powerful uh, meditation on the nature of change. Uh, you know, going through like these kind of layers and how these changes kind of never, uh, you know, can be caught and settled. And I think Andrea has a few um, ideas to say about uh, change. I'm more nervous than the filmmaker. <laughs> but um, I, I also start with a quote which is um, which which really re resonated with me, which was in Hackney. Um, the minute I think I know it, it's already slipped away. And I think there's a, a real um, what I really loved about the film, which um, I really loved it. It was really refreshing for me also to see is the, the way in which you dealt with the archive, and that the archive actually became an active archive. Um, because often history, so archive is often used, I see it as a, okay, this is when it happened, and then something else happened, and then something else happened, instead of seeing it as a continuous process and negotiation um, that's actually active, um, and that's resisting, and that's struggling, that's fighting. Um, and so, and therefore we can also reimagine the archive, and that's why I love the horse, the horse is na navigating. And it's such a simple thing, I mean, the horse's voice, but actually what it does, it's, it shows that um, we can imagine something um, and reimagining and reinterpret history. So it's not just written um, as the ones which, which um, lead up to the end result. So we have certain kind of events, but actually all these things which lead up to this event, which then has been highlighted by the kind of grand narratives. Um, and that I really loved about that film. Um, 
yeah, yes, that's uh, oh yeah, and and the main thing with this process, uh, this kind of idea of of process um, of history, historical process that's also going on in the present, um, that allows us to have hope, and I think that's really important. So that's why I like to take it Just a, a, a question that I would like to because uh, I kind of often think about what we have been trying to do um, is to listen to a place, uh, to listen to a different kind of. You know, it's almost like you were talking about the script. And, you know, what is the script of, of, of a city? What is the script of location? And what script is being generated by a particular um, um, uh, process that is going on, like in Hackney at the moment, mm. the process of regeneration, in, in a way. And then I was thinking about, because, so I, I was curious to kind of, because you were working in a similar way with voices and then a filmmaker. And so what was the nature of the collaboration between... Uh, you know, the text and, 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 and the filmmaking process, so to speak? Um, none. <laughs> uh, I wrote a play and, and then Emma went away and shot the film, I think. We, did we collaborate? No. <laughs> no. Well, I suppose what... Um, I, what Lassa says about voice um, is, is, is certainly important for me because um, my background is in radio, so I was very keen to um, create uh, a, a soundscape, a city soundscape, if you like, um, that was, was perhaps heightened and, and non-real, actually, because nothing was... Um, it was a non-sync sound, if you like. We have two, we have two montages going on. You have a, a, an image, a, a picture <coughs> montage and uh, a soundscape. And sometimes they come together, but quite often they don't. And that was very deliberate. But it was very important for me to get the sound of the city right. And I always had in my mind the, the notion or the, the term Strassenrausch. I'm sure people are familiar with that term, um, and uh, which I suppose is the clamour of the city, if you like, and what you hear from a window at night or um, the traffic passing. Um, so I was, I was very, very keen to somehow layer that in um, as, as, uh, as an important part um, of the film, just as important as the image, if you like. Um, when I was making the film, I, I was lucky enough to show the film and uh, to the film and sound editor um, of Patrick Healer's films, Larry Sider, and he was very, very helpful and instrumental in, in um, helping me and showing me how important film sound is. Is it just as important? It's, it's a, sound changes everything, and um, I think that I think that's very true. And I'd just like to respond to what um, Andrea was was saying about the the archive, which I'm, I'm glad you like the archive. Um, some some people have suggested that. To use the archive, I've used the, maybe the archive is is, is nostalgic at, at one simple level, but I, I certainly did intend it to be an active participant in what you see, because I think it contrasts very clearly um, a kind of uh, um, a forward-looking progressive urbanism that um, uh, that that you can see in terms of the creation of uh, social housing in the immediate post-war period in a place like Hackney, of course all coming from um, uh, Forshaw and Abercrombie's 1943 County of London plan and, and I, th I think this it, it contrasts very clearly what, is, what has been lost if you like um, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm implying a regret with 
um, that kind of um, municipal uh, socialism, the provision of social housing with uh, what we have now in the present moment, which is a um, top-down, profit-led um, kind of notion of regeneration uh, where developers get hold of um, places and spaces and um, uh, driven by some kind of, um, I suppose, abstract economic need as opposed to the uh, the needs of the people, the local people on the ground. So um, that that was. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you like the archive. I, I hope it worked. You know. I mean, I think it's one of the other interesting things about the film is that um, it does have this critique going on throughout it. And again, often um, the way cities are represented in film is this rather bleak dystopia without any form of analysis or critique. In other words, the presentation of the city. Um, is done in a totally um, norm. It's apolitical. It has no kind of sense in which this is engaged with any sort of possible action. So the film is is, is not only voices silent but also um, inactive. It seems to have this kind of just uh, um, blunt depiction, and it's, and um, and it's, and it's dis distinct from the subject matter, which is very odd, really. Again, documentary film, where the subject matter really should be everything, and the connection between that and some kind of action on behalf of the viewer, or understanding of the subject from the viewer should be paramount. So, that, so that's very interesting. I think the other thing that um, maybe you could just briefly talk about, I know you didn't collaborate strictly speaking, but obviously there was some kind of unseen dialogue going on between you and the text, and what's again impressive I think is the way that you've managed to marry up the image and the text um, in a way which isn't literal but also conveys something of, of the meaning of, of the written word, by which I mean one of the fundamental things in, in the understanding of this I read it this way, one reading of it is that, um, that the notion of time here is something which is um, obviously related to how one interprets the meaning yes. of one's life, it's interpreted to how one understands time and yes. is situated in one's understanding of time. Yes. Your film does that. Yes, um, I suppose um, Michael, it's, it's in Michael's script, so I'm... Um, taking all the time from what, what Michael had written, but the film, yes, the notion of time is, is collapsed, um, past and present, intermingle. And I suppose one, one of the reasons for that is that, I suppose Michael was trying to make the point, and I wanted to make the point, is that, that people live their lives over time in, in a place, um, and you have what's, I suppose, it's the, the, the Bergson notion of duration. And that, again, Michael contrasts that, and we try to contrast that with the moment. So there are two concepts of time. There's, the, there's duration and there's moment. And the moment, I suppose, is represented by, again, by the, um, the, the way that local public authorities, planners, developers will get hold of a, any given uh, piece of land or building in the moment to develop it for economic um, uh, gain, uh, again, as opposed to the, the, really the needs of um, and wants and desires of the people, local people, who have at the same time been getting into sh spaces and places and creating 
local businesses, cafes, community gardens, whatever you like. Um, or you, you can see this along Kingsland Road in Hackney where the local Turkish and Turkish-Kurdish community have completely revivified stretch, the whole stretch of Kingsland Road in 20 years. Um, but at the same time, we have more plans now for an 18-storey block to be put up again, which will cast shadows across Ridley Road markets, and where there is not even any provision for social housing written into the, the plan for that. It's so bald-faced now it, that they don't even bother to, um, to to try and pretend that there's any provision for social housing. So. Um, yeah, sorry, I've forgotten what question. <laughs> time, duration, and moment. Well, actually, time, uh, yeah. back on to the time yeah. thing, because often, uh, I think the way time is handled in mm. documentaries is rather poorly done, and it brings me on to this um, use of archives in particular. And um, just, to, just to get out of my chest, one of my um, bugbears at the moment, um, there's this app, you have an iPhone, it's called Instagram, you may have heard of it, uh, which is sort of a colorization process, which makes your photographs look like they're ancient. Um, don't use it in documentary films or try to avoid it because everybody else is doing it. And every time someone wants to depict a piece of archive material or uh, represent the past, it has this Instagram look. Um, and I can't tell you how often this has now been used, so please avoid it. Um, it doesn't make things seem older. It just makes them seem a bit naff. Um, but anyway, um, archives. Uh, and, and the other point that Michael I'd like to ask you about is, is, is the risk of, of, of um, nostalgia if you like. Um, I've seen, the, well, let's talk about nostalgia and how you avoided, I think, the kind of sentimentality of, of that. Um, yes, I think, uh, how do we distinguish between memory and nostalgia, and I suppose, um, use tricky word, authenticity. Um, I suppose, as a writer, you, if you're thinking about the past, you also have to think about history and historiography. You have to think how is the past constructed and also we all of us carry around inside our heads a notion of the past. It's what you allow, what abstract ideas you allow to inform that idea of the past. I'm informed uh, largely by Marxist ideas when thinking about the past so I view the past and the present in various forms of struggle. So in a way interlaced through that film if you like are certain ideas about how people struggle to survive, how they um, guarantee, if you like, that they can stay and deal with certain threats to the way that, the way that their existence, uh, so that their existence can carry on. I think we are all, if you like, suspended in things much bigger than ourselves, and so as a writer I'm interested in getting round behind those. Um, traditionally that's been done through historical fiction or realism and naturalism, but it, uh, it's quite interesting you don't have to do it that way. So I was quite interested in the idea that you could do it through montage, um, inspired by something like Under Milkwood, if you like, Dylan Thomas's work, that you can get round behind people's lives by contrast and comparison and by diversity and by arcing certain narratives in a very loose sort of a way, and that you can get round behind people's lives that way and bearing in mind, tucked away in the back of your mind, that people are, they have to fight to be able to live, or everybody does, you have to, and you have lots of different kinds of fights to be able to live, and I wanted to try and represent those uh, based on my experiences of living in Hackney, or coming to Hackney, I mean that's what I tried to express at the beginning, coming to Hackney as a child, because my uh, grandparents, my Bubba and Zader in Yiddish, they lived in 
uh, in Hackney all through my childhood, and then I came to live in Hackney in the 70s and lived there for about 32 or 33 years. So that was a way of trying to express, but not just me, I was interested in the idea of trying to, as I say, get round behind those lives and express it in the form of those lived lives and the kinds of things that people have to cope with just in order to, to be there. I think if you do that, there is a possibility you'll escape nostalgia. I can't say it's a guarantee, but I think there's a chance that you might, because nostalgia is to cast things in the in some kind of a rosy glow, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, Where I, you mean, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't see anything nostalgic um, when you look at that, the archive, because, um, I don't know, as a Londoner, you, we know, I know my grandparents went through the, the war and the blitz in London, and if you look at that archive, you can see this, people's faces. They're not smiling and happy. They're, they're strained, and their clothes are in a bad state, and the buildings are in a bad state. So there's nothing nostalgic about that. Who I, I wouldn't want to, you know, it's, it's, it, nostalgia's seems to suggest that we would like to return to that time, that period, and that state in some kind of um, utopian way, and um, I, I, that's, that's not what I meant. But I think that's exactly what you avoided, by showing that history is a constant process in negotiation and struggle, and making, it's a making every day. Yeah. In the past it was a making as it is now. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I, I, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's... Because it's moving back and forwards as well, I think, so you kind of, you, you avoid that kind of looking far back and not being threatened. It was better than here in the United States. I mean, the, where we worked, it's like, it used to be called the prestige blocks, and then the last 20 years it has been a sink estate. Mm-hmm. And loads of people commented on that, so that arc, and I thought it was really fantastic to see in the archive some of the images of, you know, that project when it was actually at its peak. Yeah. I mean, one the 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 thing um, I I I was very keen in the film to also depict a kind of urban what I find um, a a kind of a a beauty in the urban landscape, and for that reason, wanted to use the the paintings by Leon Kossoff and uh, Jack McFadden and James McKinnon because I think they've seen all seen something. very beautiful about the urban landscape so um, and, and I, w- I wanted to, to attempt that on film and to show that um, you know that, that to, to reimagine these old and deteriorated places and spaces as, as sites of um, beauty and history and memory and value um, I think the cost of things is an interesting kind of thing to bring in because those paintings which are often the same subject again and again and again and again are all about activity, about kind of dynamism yes, and change. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that it, again, is something which links back to this, the way you manage to avoid the, the nostalgia, which is often, I think, something which is, I think, attributed to people rather than actually lived. In other words, um, people are, are far more active and forward-looking in the way they interpret their lives than they are in backward-looking. And, um, I mean, I used to do work with just as a side so by thing here, yeah, but uh, working with immigrants and uh, and the, what was remarkable about them that they, was that they did not have this kind of cultural nostalgia for some past or place they had left, but they got on with their lives and built their lives, usually in, in a place like a factory where they could get a job, and get on with their lives. And they were all proud of that and that sense of purpose, and they were in some kind of retreat into a, a rosy-tinted, Instagrammed um, past. Um, at that point, I think we need to uh, move on a bit because uh, you're all here, and I'm sure you've all got some questions. So, um, is there a mic? Yes, there are. There's a mic. Um, so, anyone's got a question? Hand up, and the mic will come to you. 
It doesn't have to be a question, it could actually be an opinion as well, if you want. Statement. A statement, yes. Carefully prepared. Is the lady here? Document. Oh, yeah, right over here. Hi. Um, just a, a question about the choices in this, the script, really. Um, I live in Hackney, and it was great to see the, the montage of, of pictures and the, the words from, from people, which you know sounds very like my experience. But I was a little frustrated that you touched on a lot of really interesting stories, and they then they disappeared again into, into the montage, I think is the word you both used. Um, I wondered if you could just say a bit more about why you chose to make it in that way rather than following through stories in a, in a more conventional way. Um, right. I think the dominant forms of our time are, if you like, extended narratives. We're drawn into them either in the form of soaps or we're drawn into, the form, into them in... Uh, one-hour dramas, two-hour dramas, three-hour dramas, or in the form of documentaries. Uh, long, extended narratives where we're drawn into various kinds of emotional involvement of one sort or another. I'm totally in favour of those. I'm not against them. But I think sometimes if you want to confront people with things <coughs> and invite people to think about uh, places that are, if you like, every day, you have to somehow or other break the surface. And you have to try and, uh, if you like, surprise people. So the famous word is defamiliarization. Yes, is that you, you take the familiar and try to find ways of making it less familiar. And there, it's difficult to find ways because if you have dominant artistic forms of one sort or another, you always get sucked towards them. And I think uh, I was interested in the idea that with montage in particular, this is one of the ways in which you can render the familiar less familiar because you suddenly juxtapose one thing up against another that you wouldn't normally expect. And just as you get involved in one story, you get involved in another, and so in a way you're invited to make analogies. You make the leap from one story to another rather than getting sucked into the drama or melodrama, whichever word you want to use, of that particular story. So. Just, I mean, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So maybe, I don't know, people might have thought, oh, well, it's interesting, that Caribbean guy, that Jamaican guy, there he was, he had to face up to a particular kind of racism in the site, and there were those Jewish people, and they had to face up to something, but this was a different kind of racism or whatever, and that people would make the leap, maybe, the spark would happen across those two poles without thinking necessarily very consciously about that and without necessarily getting so totally involved in that particular story that they didn't necessarily uh, then think that through. And at the same time, those stories being vivified and revivified, as you've said, uh, by what you're seeing, both of the past and the present. So that's, in a way, the method. Whether the method works or not is another matter. That's for you. You're the interpreter. You're the audience. But that's the method behind it. And really... I mostly I write poems, and poems are very strange kind of, um, I suppose they're in a way they're kind of the root, if they're not the roots of narrative, they're the kind of relics of narrative. Quite often poems are just um, the bit in the middle, or the bit at the end, or the bit at the beginning, and people establish a narrative around them. And so I'm quite interested in the idea in drama, whether you can do something similar, where you create these nubs of narrative and that people construct things for themselves around them, yes? So quite how that Jamaican guy got there, or, you know, and of course we hear a bit about what happened to it at the end, but then we don't hear any more after that. That's okay. You then create the spaces, you, in those spaces you create other meanings for yourself. 
So it's, it's a, just another way of writing, and it's an attempt to defamiliarize, basically. Yeah. Okay, anyone else? Uh, yeah, again, this side at front here, and then we'll go to the one at the back. On the theme of time, thank you, by the way, it's a wonderful documentary. On the theme of time, I, I, I found both the, um, the, the, the use of the Shakespearean uh, Burbage house and the snippets of uh, Romeo and Juliet, wonderful, uh, um, almost parallelism of that conflict with the, the other ethnic voices uh, that we've been hearing in, in history, as well as the visual uh, juxtaposition. Uh, it's, it's a little bit jarring, on, both on the, on, the, uh, on the voice part as well as on the, uh, the visual, because it's a very different scene when you're filming inside that, I guess, that house. Can you comment on, on, uh, on the inclusion of, uh, of the Burbage House bit to the voices as well as in the, in the, in the documentary? Thank you. Yeah, um, Shoreditch, okay. Uh, you, you hear a piece of documentary, which I preface by saying that it's Shakespeare saying it and another piece with another bit. So it's part dramatic, part documentary, that's to say, in the corner of Shoreditch, if you go down Curtain Road, the last bit of Curtain Road is you're just about to cross Great Eastern Road, you'll see a plaque on the wall. That's the plaque for Shakespeare's first theatre. It was called, incredibly uh, poetically, the theatre. Um, and just a bit further on was the Curtain Theatre, and that's why that's called Curtain Road. So the first theatre that Shakespeare worked in in London that we know, from a documentary point of view, was actually in Hackney. Okay. We also know that in the last year of the 16th century, uh, they were about to be evicted. Burbage's company was about to be evicted, and so to avoid being the theatre itself being seized, they demolished it, and then made across the Thames with it and set up on Bankside. So that's the story that you get intermingled with that. But then, if you take those first years of the last, the last decade of the, of the uh, 16th century and look at the plays that Shakespeare was in or was put on, well, one of them was Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet is very interesting for, in my mind because it's an urban play. In the urban landscape of Elizabethan times had very interesting parallels with some of the landscape and urban landscape of today. You had groups, you had gangs, you had migrants, you had all sorts of issues that were occurring around the fringes of the city, all kinds of bans and proclamations and so on going on, some of which Shakespeare, if you look at the text quite closely, are put in the text. And of course, with these people yelling death to each other on the basis of who they are and how they were born, uh, I found that quite interesting, given that that's exactly what was being shouted to my forebears um, around Ridley Road in 1946, 47, 48. So there was that going on. So, so that's what the Shakespeare is doing and it's there for the historical reason that there's, you can be 99.9% .9 certain that Romeo and Juliet went on in Hackney in about 1597. Roundabout. Okay, we have time for one last question. I think there was, yeah, the end of the row. Thanks. Uh, well, it's a bit of an observation following on from what the producer of the film there was saying that uh, it seems a characteristic um, I mean, think of social housing again and again. So, so often, older buildings that were occupied by working people of a previous generation are torn down, are, are, might be torn down and replaced with new social housing 
for, for working people today or some other or a big development or else they become hugely valuable and then they're occupied by people whose you know might might genetically be descended from working people or whatever but whose own situation in society now is utterly different and it seems as if and at the same time in the media you get this valorization of oh who who do you think you are and this sort of thing where everybody's looking at what their great-grandfather's great-grandmother did um, it, it's as if you know it's taken away the memory of re really the memory of the working people as a group or a, or a class or whatever just following on from what you said very quick response. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've, I'm kind of agreeing with you at one level. And of course, what's distressing, I find quite distressing, is the way in which the discourse about the city, we, we, it's allowed to, if you like, be given a, a real false dichotomy. We're told all the time that you either have dereliction or you have regeneration. And in fact, the dereliction is quite often humanly made by the people in power, not by somehow willful people kicking doors in, which is quite often the way it's presented. You know, it's full of hoodlums, but whatever and vandals. In fact, there's no greater vandal uh, in Hackney than the local council. They have vandalised by letting all sorts of places that they took over run down. Go and have a look at Dalston Lane as a perfect example. Okay, they took it over and have let it run down. They did that again and again and they then pose the alternative. The alternative, they say, is regeneration. But regeneration, which is quite a nice neutral word, you know, we're all in favour of regeneration, you know, I mean, for ourselves, apart from anything else, you know. But, I mean, it, and it sounds so nice and snug and cosy, doesn't it? But in actual fact, what it means is selling this stuff to developers, right, selling off great slabs of the city to developers, exactly as Emma says, for top-down, profit-led purposes. They, they, they have lost totally the purpose that was there in that Abercrombie plan, which was to provide social housing, that one of the functions of local councils was to bloody look after us. That was what it would, that's what we thought we were doing. We voted for them, we give them money, and then we say, look after us, all right? And now that bit of looking after keeps shrinking. It comes down to schools, and then they flog them off, or go buy them, or whatever they do now, right? And then they say, well, we do social services, well, we can farm those out, Okay, well, we used to do hospitals, don't do hospitals anymore. And so it keeps coming down and down, and then with the housing, what they're doing is trying to flog it off to housing associations, or when it comes to these spaces, which they, you know, in one's dream of dreams, they would be creating social housing. And after all, now they know how to do it. Having made mistakes, and they did make mistakes, with, you know, the Ronan points and all the rest of it, and these big tower blocks with, without any shops, Nosley is a classic case in point. They then learned, just at the point at which they learned how to do it and to reproduce what the Victorians did anyway, which is, you know, three ups, three downs, garden up front, garden out the back, you know, and high density, but, you know, low rise, and they learned how to do it. Instead, what they do is they just flog the bloody lot off and jam it full, full of people, quite often buy to rents, and the social commitment has gone. And then you get the mayor of Hackney or all sorts of people saying, there is no alternative. Tina, there is no alternative, there is no other regeneration. And there in front of them, exactly as Emma says, you see communities, when given the space, and by God they have to fight for it, sometimes clinging on to freeholds, contesting compulsory purchase orders, right, fighting every inch of the way, all, all the way up Kingston Road, say you've got the Turkish community have revivified that, or you've got the Vietnamese community, and then what do you get when you meet people from the council and you say, well, what about that? They're doing that. Uh, they had a weird thing in front of the town hall called I Love Fucking Hackney, right? And it, <laughs> it didn't have the fucking bit in it. It just said, I love Hackney, right? And they all had to go and you had to go, I love Hackney, you see? And so I went along to that, my leery sort of way, and I kind of stood there 
kind of looking at this stuff and the, and the lady came up to me and she said oh what do you think and I said well actually I think that this is not really very good and I put it very politely because you can imagine and, and, and I, I happened to mention one or two things as you might imagine and then she said but look at Kingsland Road she said and I went yeah and she said it's a mess and I thought what she is referring to this fantastic piece of local home-based regeneration of a place for, you know, a community that quite often is accused of looking inwards, which looks outwards and says, look what we, Turkish people, can do. If you want to come to our hairdressers, come and get your, get your hair cut here. If you want to come to our cafes, come to our cafes. Look, we've got a Turkish music shop. Come in and buy a Turkish record, the rest of it. There's nothing closed about it, and they've regenerated it. All these people quite often ever ask for is either a loan or the permission to paint the front of their place or whatever, or sometimes just to get a lease, which is they're not allowed to do quite often. That's what happened in Dalston Lane because the council said, no, we're, re we're regenerating it. In other words, put Starbucks in there or something. Right? That's what is it. And that's the route. All the time that happens. And it just, you know, it, it, what in the end, it's a form of cleansing. It's a form of, you want to call it whatever, ethnic cleansing as it sometimes is, or class cleansing. It's moving people on in order for this kind of, and again, gentrification doesn't express it. That isn't exactly what's going on. It's profitization. That is what keeps happening. And it's happening all over the world. It's happening in every urban center all over the world. And it's happened in Paris. It's happened in New York, San Francisco, Boston. You go all over the world and you can find this going on.